This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. Get me on Twitter at Dan Grasso, G-R-A-C-A. Mets losing to the Bravos, 3-0 that in the sixth inning right now. Taiwan Walker leaves after two innings with back spasms. What else is new? If you're a Met pitcher, you can't make it to the third inning. Apparently healthy so far here this week. Uh, Yanks are trailing the Rays 3-1. That one in the seventh inning in the Bronx. Yanks scoring their only run courtesy of an error. Bats are quiet. Just two lousy stinking hits. Robbie in Massachusetts called up a little while ago. He's complaining about Andrew Benatendi. Benatendi's got the only two hits for the Yankees tonight. Imagine if he wasn't in the lineup. You'd be sitting there talking about maybe getting no hit. Oh, they got to break both of these teams. I don't care which one you root for. Both of these teams got to get their head out of there. You know what? I know it's only the middle of August, but come on. Tired of watching this crap from both sides. Anyway, we're going to talk to Jerry Carino coming up in about 15 minutes. We'll mellow out some. Jerry's great. I call him the dean of college hoops writers in the state of New Jersey. Pete Carrill, the Hall of Famer, longtime legendary Princeton head coach. He passed away at the age of 92 yesterday. So we'll look back on his career. And certainly he's got a lot of stories talking about Pete and everything that he meant to the game, both on the collegiate level and even on the NBA level. With his offense and those concepts, you know, that even transcended to the professional ranks and how some of those were implemented to other teams. You know, those back in the day, I talked about it last night, you know, those uh, Jason Kidd net teams that went to the finals, you know, in 2002, 2003, there was some, you know, under Byron Scott, those, there was some, Pete Carrill, Princeton offense type stuff there that they were running. And uh, it was effective. It really was. But, you know, I mentioned the NBA and the schedule is going to be coming out here tomorrow, which, you know, you kind of look forward to. You get a little bit of a hint as to, you know, what we can expect or what we'd like to think we could expect for the season. But they leaked the Christmas Day games for the NBA. And, and it's problematic because the thing that the NBA is going up against this year, like, look, I don't know how many of you spend Christmas Day watching the NBA. But to the casual sports fan, that's always kind of been like the unofficial start of the NBA season, right? Like that's the day that everybody's going to be paying attention to basketball when ordinarily they're not. But the challenge that the league faces this year, really for the first time ever, is that not only are they going up against the NFL, which has happened before, it happened last year, But this is the first time the NFL is playing a triple header on Christmas Day. So think about what the NBA is going to give you. They'll give you five games, Milwaukee against Boston, Milwaukee at Boston. All right, that's a good game. Get it, right? The last two Eastern Conference champions. And then you got Philadelphia visiting the Knicks. I asked this question innocently. I'm not trying to start fires here. I'm just throwing it out there for conversation because that's what we're here for, right? Are the Knicks still a Christmas Day draw? You know, like, and then you say, well, what is a Christmas Day draw? Is it appointment television when you talk about the sport respective to the biggest names, the biggest stars, the biggest teams, or is it just because it's New York and you got to throw them on? Because the Knicks have played a lot on Christmas over the last several years, and more often than not, they haven't been very good. But Philadelphia is coming to town. You know, they're never going to stick Sacramento at Madison Square Garden on Christmas Day. Like, that's never going to happen. And usually, at least in recent years, when the Knicks are on Christmas Day, it's more because of the opponent that's coming in. 
And this case, I think it's no different with Philadelphia. You got Embiid. You got Mr. Discount, James Harden. Right? You got stars on that team. I mean, yeah, the Knicks have some good players. I don't know if they're household names, star names. You know, if Donovan Mitchell's here by Christmas, okay, that that, that changes things, certainly. But I don't know if Jalen Brunson is like appointment television on Christmas Day. You know, I don't know if there's people who are casual sports fans that, you know, maybe can take it or leave it when it comes to the NFL and they're just flipping through the channels and they're looking for something to watch and they're going to land on Jalen Brunson and R.J. Barrett and the Knicks taking on Philadelphia at MSG. You know, let's open some presents. Then you got Phoenix visiting Denver. All right, you know. I don't know how many people in this these neck of the woods are going to be watching that game. Denver, you know, you got the two-time MVP in Jokic, but it's Denver. And then you got Phoenix. Lakers, Dallas, you know, they're going to have, consider that a marquee game because you got LeBron, the Lakers, Dallas with Luka, right? And then late at night, you got Memphis at Golden State. It's a good basketball game, but... I don't know how many people are going to be wanting to watch it because it still is only just one of 82. You got the champs. You got John Morant. And who knows how much more damage Memphis could have possibly did last year if John Morant didn't get hurt, right? We could have been talking about potentially a completely different outcome. But Memphis is a fun team. They play hard. They grind. So that's what you got on Christmas Day. Now, by comparison, when you're trying to match it up, the NFL gives you this. Packers-Dolphins down in South Beach, which, by the way, if you're going to put the Packers on Christmas Day, why don't you have them playing at home, right? Like, does palm trees and the beach and sunshine, is that that what Christmas is? No. Christmas is cold, snowy, frosty. Gets dark at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, that, that that's Green Bay weather. Not Miami. But that's the way the schedule came out. So you got Rodgers going down to South Beach to take on the fish. Then you get Russell Wilson and the Broncos going to take on the champs at SoFi Stadium in L.A. That's the middle game. And then they're going to finish things off with Tampa Bay, Brady and the Bucks if he's there, and if he decides to come back after his little hiatus here. You got Brady visiting Arizona and the Redbirds in the desert, which I don't think is a very good game, to be quite honest with you, because it's December the 25th, it's late in the season, and the one thing you know for sure is that that is prime real estate for the Cardinals under Cliff Kingsbury to have their annual second-half swoon. So I don't know if you're a betting person or not, but right now I I don't even know what the line is because it's still four months away. I would still right now make a bet that Tampa Bay will cover that game handily, whatever the spread is, because Arizona just doesn't take care of business in the second half of the season. And to be quite honest with you, they don't have my trust. And they're going to have to do a lot to earn it. Promise you that one. So, yeah, I I mean – Are they the greatest NFL matchups on paper? No, but it's the NFL. And I really believe they could put like Tennessee and Jacksonville on Christmas Day, and it would still comfortably outdraw and outrate anything that the NBA is going to throw out there.
It don't matter how many games, it don't matter how many matchups that the NBA wants to schedule on Christmas Day, if you're putting an NFL game up against it, that is what is going to command the most set of eyeballs because it's football. I mean, geez, you could put an NFL preseason game on Christmas Day and it's still probably going to outdraw the NBA. But we'll get all of our answers officially coming up tomorrow when the NBA schedule is revealed. Looking forward to that, I guess. And by the way, I meant to talk about this a little bit earlier. So Fernando Tatis, right, embarrassed himself, embarrassed the Padres, embarrassed baseball, got busted with the PEDs, says it was for a ringworm infection that he had, you know, topical ointment, which contained a banned steroid. Fernando Tatis Sr., has been doing some interviews and saying that, well, you know, it wasn't anything related to baseball or related to even, you know, getting healthy. It's not helping him swing a bat or anything like that. Instead, it was he got a haircut and he developed a fungus and he got something that he probably shouldn't have used and now he's suspended 80 games. All right, that's great, but he still cheated. He still cheated. You can make all the excuses you want. It's still a horrible look. And it's going to take Tatis a long time to get back into the good graces of not only probably his own organization, but the fan base and the baseball fans and to non-Padre fans as well. Because, you know what, he's going to be branded a cheater for the rest of his career. That's what happens. You get that scarlet letter for the rest of your career if you get busted once. And I said last night, because we played A-Rod sound from the K-Rod cast on Sunday night when he was talking about the Tatis suspension, and he related it to his own personal struggles that he had when, you know, of course everybody knows A-Rod's history. But he said, you know, Tatis is not going to go to the Hall of Fame. And I actually disagree with that. Tatis has a chance because he's still so young. You know, was he 21, 22 years old? If he goes and plays another, you know, let's just say 15 years in the major leagues, never gets into trouble again, Never even jaywalks, for crying out loud, much less a suspension, an injury, and he goes out there and he just wins MVPs. I think that this will be enough in the rear view to where Tatis might one day find himself in Cooperstown if he could just stay on the field. You know he's talented enough, but it's going to take some time. Case in point, September 7th, the Padres were supposed to have a Fernando Tatis bobblehead night. Well, in light of recent events, as you might expect, San Diego's gone ahead and they've canceled that bobblehead night. And instead, they now made it a Juan Soto jersey giveaway. It's like the T-shirt the that looks like a jersey. It's, you know, fake, but whatever. You get it for free. Price of admission, it's a free. You don't get anything for free these days in this world. You take what you can get. So you're getting a Juan Soto jersey if you go to the game on September the 7th as opposed to a Fernando Tatis bobblehead. You know what they should have done? And if anybody had a sense of humor in the marketing department with the Padres, they should make like a Fernando Tatis ringworm bobblehead. You know, with like the fungus like prominently displayed on the bobblehead. And they should give that out. And then everybody could have a laugh over it. Ha, 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 ha. And Fernando's not going to be there because he's going to be serving a suspension. When we come back, we'll talk to Jerry Carino, Asbury Park Press, Gannett Newspapers in New Jersey, Talking about the life, the career of the late, great Hall of Famer Pete Carrill, who passed away yesterday at the age of 92. That is next. Stan Grasso with you till the top, right here on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight.
Pete Carrill was a basketball lifer, passed away on Monday at the age of 92, certainly probably remembered more than anything else for his years, some three decades at the helm of the Princeton Tigers where he played the role of giant killer many times in the month of March in the NCAA tournament. And who better to talk about the Hall of Famer with than our next guest? I call him the dean of college basketball writers in New Jersey, Asbury Park Press. He's our good pal, Jerry Carino. Jerry, Dan Grassa, great to catch up again, my friend. How are you? Thanks a lot, Dan. Always great to talk hoops in August, although it's a sad occasion. You know what? In a lot of ways, it's a celebratory occasion because you celebrate the life of a basketball icon. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it. I couldn't have said it better myself. And it's funny. The last time you and I talked, it was when St. Peter's was making that run all the way to the, the Elite Eight. And sure, that was a lot more cheerful subject matter. But I think you hit it right on the head when you said, you know, you're talking about Pete Carrill. So many things from his life and his career, you almost have to chuckle and smile. And it really is a celebration when you think about everything this guy accomplished. You know, I talked to several of his former players and coaches who coached with him and players who became coaches. And they all kind of felt the same way. Like, I didn't get a sense of sadness. I get a, I got a sense of this is a moment to reflect on a man's greatness and his contributions. You mentioned Dan St. Peter's when we talked last. I mean, St. Peter's, in a lot of ways, and Loyola before them, they stand on the shoulders of Princeton. So when, you, when you're talking about Pete Carrillo, and this is why the guy leaves such a huge legacy, you're talking really about three different incredible storylines that everyone's been sort of processing in the basketball world the last couple of days. And one of them is, you know, he really helped build March Madness. He put the madness in March when, when his Princeton team in 1989 as a, a number 16 seed came within one point of beating number one Georgetown with Alonzo Mourning. It was a sensation. I mean, that really like turned March Madness or turned the NCAA tournament on its head and gave credence to the idea that anyone could win. And I heard a, a really good anecdote about Kirill. When, when he won his 500th game in his last season, and think about this, the guy won 500 Division I men's basketball games without a scholarship player. Yep. The only coach ever to do that, ever to do that. He wins his 500th game, and someone in a press conference asked Kirill, uh, what is you know, your most memorable win? And he said, I'd have to start with the Georgetown game. And of course <laughs> he knew that he lost the game, Dan. But his point was, his point was, it was a win for everybody who thought the little guy belonged in March Madness. And St. Peter's and Loyola, they stood on Princeton's shoulders. And, of course, you know, eight years later, anyone my age and, you know, probably your age even, if you remember where you were when they beat UCLA, 43-41, 1996 NCAA tournament, UCLA's defending national champs. Princeton runs a backdoor cut with, like, three seconds left, hits a layup. And just a monumental, like an all-time, and you know, Kirill's last tournament, an all-time moment, and like this is what it's all about. So that is a major contribution Kirill has made, but it's it's one of only a couple, several contributions the man made to the game. Like the basketball that you and I watch today, that the world watches, you know, the idea of you're going to either take the ball to the rim or shoot a three. That is basically that's like the mo in every level of the game now. Yep. That started in large part with the Princeton offense. That's what it was. It was you're going to cut to the basket and you're going to get that layup, or you're going to kick the ball around off the motion offense for an open open three. That's what it was. So like really, you're standing on the shoulders of Pete Carrillo in the way the game is played in the month of March. And we'll, and I didn't even get into what a character the guy was right oh. then and there. Though that's like a legacy that's going to last a long time. 
Talking with Jerry Carino here on the Dan Grosser Show, 9870 ESPN. You asked, so I'll tell you. You know where I was when, UC, when they beat UCLA? I'll never forget. I, it was in March. I was at the Meadowlands Arena watching a New Jersey Nets game. Uh, it's sitting in the upper deck. I can't remember who they were playing, but I remember seeing it and following it along. You know, people had, you know, getting updates and so on and so forth. That's where I was yeah. that night. And then seeing the highlights when I got home. But And, and think about it. Final score of that game was 43-41. You're playing basketball <laughs> in the 40s, which now... Nowadays, I mean, Jerry, you look at the NBA game, right? Nobody plays defense. It's run and gun, up and down the floor, shooting right. threes. But he realized that with the personnel that he had, like you said, no scholarship players, he couldn't compete with the big boys. So he almost had to, quote, unquote, take the air out of the basketball, grind it to a halt. But you know what? More often than not, he still found a way to come out on top, even against the big boys. And think about it. I mean, it's, just, it's a story that goes beyond college basketball because – that's the way he had to play at Princeton, right, with what he was up against. But then you know, he goes to the Sacramento Kings in his, in his mid-60s after retiring from Princeton. He goes to the Kings and, and helps revolutionize the pro game. Like, he takes his game, his concept to the pros, and, you know, they weren't playing the games in the 40s, but they were, they were doing the kind of motion offense, you know, the cutting, the three-point shooting, that, the, the beautiful sort of offense that, that like he brought there and for a number of years really flourished. And the Kings were actually good back then for a while, which is hard to believe. But he, he did the he brought that to the NBA and got NBA players to buy into it. So I, you're right. It wasn't so much Kirill like wanted to bleed the clock dry. And of course he wasn't the reason they that the shot clock came on in, in uh in college basketball. I think it was more Dean Smith was playing four corners which which made you know which made uh Princeton look like they were running they were on a super highway on the Autobahn. But 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 he but Kirill um, he played. He did. We had to do to win. Like he adjusted to his circumstances, and then he got to the pros. And, and guys like Jason Kidd, you know, with, with under Eddie Jordan's tutors, who of course learned learned under uh, under Carrillo at Sacramento. Like they were they were running his stuff, and it, it was great. It was great to watch. So really, the man affected the game on all levels. No doubt about it, and I'm glad you bring up the NBA influence, and I was talking about that a little while ago with the Jason Kidnets back-to-back finals. I mean, you saw a lot of those concepts into that offense, which Jason Taylor was the perfect maestro for, of course, and he operated it to incredible amounts of success. And you think about the Sacramento years, Jerry. I mean, those Kings team, you said they were good. 2002, he was on the bench when they went toe-to-toe with the Lakers in the conference finals and probably should have beat those Shaq Kobe Lakers if not for some shoddy officiating. Remember that? That's right. So I mean, really, and it was just great. It was great basketball to watch. And that's the thing. Even when, even when Kirill's teams were playing low-scoring games at Princeton, or whether he, when he was with the Kings, it was just great basketball to watch. It was like people you could see his players thinking the game, you know, and sharing the game. And it was really an incredible sight. And that's the guy. That's the guy's legacy. Like he has an offense, basically, made more or less named after him. I mean, how many people can say that? You know, and if you think about the character that he was, I mean, normally when you hear the word curmudgeon, right, like it's not one that's necessarily overly flattering. But I think in his case, he was almost like a a character curmudgeon because it seemed like he never wanted to take any credit from what his teams were doing, you know, never get complacent. It's always like on to the next challenge. That would probably be a suitable word to describe him, but in a good way, right? Think about this. Uh, Basketball has always been, especially college basketball, what the pros do, the college basketball has always been good for its coaches having character like that you don't see in football. It's very suppressed, you know, like everyone wants to be a Belichick type CIA operative. Right. But then you have basketball and there's more extroverts and personalities. But like Kirill, even for basketball was out there. I mean, 
he, I read a fantastic story in, in SI uh, yesterday on SI's web, website, and I had heard bits of this before, but like they, they won a game in Virginia uh, the year 75 when, when Princeton won the NIT, which was a big deal. Like Princeton was ranked 12th in sure. the country. They won the NIT. It was still a big deal then. Anyway, they beat Virginia at some point late in the season at Virginia, and Kirill gets tossed from the game. And he's the only coach there. Like his assistants, they only had two back then. Now there's a million guys on the bench. They only had two assistants, and they were both out recruiting. And for some reason, he was the only coach there. So he gets thrown out five minutes into the second half with Princeton holding on a narrow lead. He has to appoint one of his players as the coach. So he appoints one of his guards to do all the substitutions <laughs> and make all the decisions. And you know what? His guys were so well drilled that they won the game. They won the game with, with Kirill in the locker room. And then afterwards, afterwards, Kirill gets uh, a bathtub in it, the bathtub in his hotel room and fills it with beer cans and invites all of his players back in to drink beer with him. You know, this is the type of character he was. And, like, they don't make him like that anymore, you know. But it was just – and I, I came along, like, too late in the profession mm-hmm. you know, to really cover it. Teams I was starting right around when he was retired. But, of course, I grew up watching those games. Uh, but I've heard the stories from everybody, just what a character he was. And, you know, he could be hard on guys, too. Like, he had that professorial look. But, man, he could, he could ride an official and he could get on his players and he could talk of a blue streak. Uh, I think it was uh, Brian Kennedy, who's the coach at, uh, at NJIT uh, now. He, he played at Princeton. And, and think about this also, Dan. Six, six former Peak School players are current Division One head coaches. That's right. At a 356. I think coach, only Coach K has more as many or more, uh, you know, guys from, that, from history that played for him who are currently head coaches. So six guys, Brian Kennedy's one of the NJIT. Brian Kennedy says he was, Kirill was going nuts one day, and he said to a guy who wasn't, you know, hustling hard enough, oh, you must have grown up in a three-car garage. That was the <laughs> ultimate insult. A three-car garage. You're soft. You're rich. That was the ultimate insult. So, Anyway, there was apparently like Kirill had this devoted following of the faculty and the people in town, and and Kennedy was telling me that uh, these two guys were always at practice. One was Marvin Bressler, who was like the world's like leading sociologist. Okay, this guy would come in and, and go to Princeton's practices and games, and he sat next to a guy called Red the Bricklayer, and the guy was a local mason. And these were Kirill's buddies, and they would come to practice, <laughs> and then they'd all go out drinking afterwards. I mean, this is just a world gone by, but that gives you a sense of the every man type of character that he had. Yeah, and the thing, too, Jerry, you know, you think about if this was nowadays, and we know what happens. I mean, you're coaching uh, a mid-major program like Princeton in the Ivy League. And remember, back then, you didn't have a conference tournament in the Ivy. It was you win your league, you go to the dance, and that's it. But he's there for right. three decades how many times did he have to rebuff the overtures? You know, did any of the big boys come calling, trying to lure him away? Like, what kept him at Princeton for 30 years? That's a great point. Now, let's start with this, this, this point. When he got the job, it was down to him and Bobby Knight were the final two candidates. So Bobby Knight's coaching at Army. And, you know, Bobby Knight's looking to go back to the Midwest. And he's an Ohio guy. He's looking to go back to the Midwest and coach in the Big Ten. He just wants to use these jobs as a stepping stone. Obviously, a brilliant coach in his own right and also a wild personality. But, but Kirill gets a job because a couple of guys who knew him, you know, Gary Walters and some other players, who knew him from his, his, his uh, Eastern Pennsylvania days, recommended him. And then, uh, he, so he beats out Bobby Knight for the job, and he stays 29 years. Yeah, I mean, how many times was his phone have rang over those years? Think about it. 
the guy who, who think about where Princeton coaches have done other than Kirill. The guy before Kirill, Butch Van Breedekal, leaves Princeton for the Lakers. He became head coach of the Lakers. I mean, that's where he went to from Princeton. Could you imagine that today? It's unfathomable. So that's the type of setting Kirill steps into. And now he never, he never changed a job offer. He never takes an interview. He never looks outside of the borders until like he leaves for the pros 30 years later. Um, but yes, I can only imagine. But think about this. The coach after him, Bill Carmody, leaves to go to Northwestern. Doesn't work out. The coach after him, Sidney Johnson, leaves to go to Fairfield for more money. And it doesn't, doesn't work out. Uh, and then you have Mitch Henderson there, who I think is channeling some of Kirill's, you know, loyalty to the school, and he's going to his 12th year, and maybe he'll stay. But 29 years, it's just – you may never see that again. In, in New Jersey, no one's even come close to that. In the pressure cooker of today's Division One men's basketball, with all you got to do and the results you got to get and the money that's at stake, it's just something we may never see again. But 29 years, you're the face of a university. And – of Princeton, one of the world's great universities. And really, what else can you say about the guy? His loyalty was off the charts. I'll tell you, if you're a fan of you know a certain age, even if you didn't follow the Ivy League necessarily, even if other parts of the country, you're familiar with those March Madness. And, I mean, when they beat UCLA, that's still part of the highlight reel and the package every single March when the tournament rolls around. They make sure they have Kirill with the hair all messed up and the sweater on the sideline celebrating after that layup to beat the defending champs in UCLA. It's going to live on for years and years and years, and so will his legacy there in Princeton. Jer, always great to connect, my friend. We'll do it again here real soon. And, hey, hoops are just around the corner. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. I can't wait. We'd love to do it, Dan. Stay in touch. All right, you'll be good. There's Jerry Carino, the dean of college hoops writers in New Jersey, Asbury Park Press, about the late, great Pete Carrill passed away at the age of 92. Just funny, funny, funny. I'll tell you, Pete was never going to be on the, uh, the, the, you know, wearing those Armani suits either, like some of these, co- you know, Calipari and Jay. He wasn't going to be confused with those guys on the sidelines. He was just the throwback. Didn't care, you know, what he was sporting. Just go out there, give me my team, give me a ball, and let's see if we could get the job done when it's all said and done. But w- what a character he really And I remember as a kid watching those Princeton teams, and it's obvious, like, you know, they didn't have as much man-for-man talent as some of those other programs did and you just wondered and and they were frustrating as hell because you know you had the 48 second shot clock and and he would they would sit there and it would seem like milk every last second of that 48 and they would move the ball they would settle for good shots they wouldn't take bad shots and generally speaking they'd find somebody open and they would you know bury a three let's say and then they would just feast on your mistakes that would make them so damn frustrating especially when they went up against the giants there whether it's in march or or whenever uh 800-919-3776 that is the telephone number giants are going to honor some of their former greats and we have a little bit of an update about maybe some reinforcements on the way for the New York Yankees, as a matter of fact. We're rolling till 10 o'clock, then it's Larry Hardesty. Dan Grasso with you on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Thanks to Jerry Carino for hopping on, talking about uh, Pete Carrillo. While we were away, uh, just to get you caught up here on what's happening with the baseball, 3-1 Tampa Bay still over the Yankees. They're in the bottom of the eighth in the Bronx, although Yanks got something cooking here potentially. They got the tying run up at the dish because Glaber Torres just picked up the Yankees, what, what would this be, fourth hit of the night. I mean, we're, we're getting crazy now, as a matter of fact. Judge is coming up, and we got ourselves a 3-1 game 
Um, Mets, on the other hand, they're trailing 3-0, bottom seven. Jeff McNeil was the tying run in the top of the seventh. He strikes out with two men on to end the inning there. So the Yankees are scuffling. They need all the help they can get on offense. And Bob uh, Bob Clappish of uh, NJ.com, of course, longtime venerable baseball columnist, tweeted out a, a little while ago, that with Aaron Hicks invisible and the rest of the Yankees lineup in a deep slump, sources say Esteban Florio is expected to be called up tomorrow. He's batting 284, 14 home runs, 32 stolen bases at Triple A. Now, look, that slash line right there, I mean, I don't have to tell you, it's pretty damn good, especially if you project that over the course of a full season. Here's the problem with that, though. Esteban Florio, in the last few glimpses he's gotten in the big league level and it's a small sample size we're talking about a guy who's played a grand total of 16 games over the last three years with the Yanks remember he's had a few games already this year he just hasn't hit you know he hasn't produced and that ultimately is what's going to keep you up here it's not how well you could track it down in the outfield and you know he's a glove first guy he's got the wheels but the hit tool was something that was I don't want to say it was questionable and this is even before like he even debuted And when you wondered about, okay, when he was being talked about as a prospect and, you know, what were some of the knocks on his game and so on and so forth, it was more about is he going to be able to hit consistently enough to pretty much, you know, nail down a place permanently in this Yankees outfield. And if not, you know, uh, even this past trade deadline, remember his name was even being floated around in some circles as well. You know, if the Yankees have to dig deep into the system to be able to get themselves a coveted prize, well, why not part with a guy like Floreal if you believe – that he's never going to ultimately, like, reach the... Like, is Esteban Floreal going to project into a perennial all-star? Not many people are. So, I mean, okay, let's take a step down from that. Is Esteban Floreal going to one day mature into somebody who can be, you know, even like, a, let's say, a two- or three-time all-star for you? I'm not even 100% certain there. He kind of reminds me... A little bit. You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of a little bit like a Dexter Fowler, you know, from what I've seen. Now, obviously, you want his ceiling to be higher than that, and the Yankees hope his ceiling is higher than that. But right now, you cannot in any way, shape, or form disagree with the fact that they got to do something because it's stale, it's tiresome, And all they're doing is basically just beating their head against the wall, hoping for a different result, and it's not happening. You know, if you can infuse a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a buzz, then do it. Because remember something. If you call Floreal up here, and if you're going to give him the keys to center field, at least for the next couple of weeks, and to see how far he can let this thing ride, and if he's going to hit long enough to merit being in the line of ball, and the thing that maybe he comes in with no pressure because nobody's hitting right now. Right? It's not like Florial is going to have to keep up with anybody else because nobody else in this lineup is doing a damn thing. But you got Harrison Bader waiting in the wings. Eventually, that boot is going to come off. And eventually, he's the guy that the Yankees hope is going to be the center fielder come the month of October because he could track anything down. But you know what? Who's to say that Florial is not going to catch fire? And the Yankees are going to have to find it difficult. And Aaron Boone is going to find it difficult to not write his name in the lineup each and every day. That's what you hope for if you're a Yankee fan. Am I confident it's going to happen? We'll see. But, hey, 
do something. Do anything. 800-919-3776, that is the telephone number. Giants announced today that they are going to induct some new members into their ring of honor at a game this season. I believe it's against the Cowboys, the game that they're going to be playing. Um, I want to say, yes, yeah, September the 26th, Monday night game. Let's see, that's 11, 18, week three against the Cowboys. And they are as follows. Uh, Jimmy Patton, old-time giant. Kyle wrote old-time giant. Ronnie Barnes, who's, you know, basically been like their, you know, head medical officer for years and years and been with the organization forever. So rightly deserved by him. And then, of course, you know, some players that date back to the glory years. Under Bill Parcells, you got O.J. Anderson, who was, of course, MVP of Super Bowl 25. You got Rodney Hampton, who didn't get a chance to play in any of the Super Bowls with the. Well, you know, he was a rookie in. Uh, was he taken in 90 or 91? I don't remember if he was on that Super Bowl team, but he didn't get a lot of uh, looks. But, you know, he certainly then took over once, you know, they moved on from O.J. Anderson and then they turned the reins over. His best years were with, you know, when Dan Reeves was the coach. Um, with the Giants. And then he got injured, and then they drafted Tiki, and then, you know, kind of passed the torch to him. Rodney Hampton's years is kind of like the, the bell cow for the Giants. They, they were kind of short-lived, but he was good. You know, he had that, you know, two, three-year stretch there where he was, you know, Pro Bowl caliber back. He was a good, hard running back out of Georgia, first-round pick. I like watching him run. Uh, and then, of course, Leonard Marshall, you know, two-time Super Bowl champ, anchor on that defensive line. Some of these names, like, like Leonard Marshall, O.J. Anderson, like, you know, he – even Rodney Hampton, you think, and, and Joe Morris, he's the fourth guy. Um, you would think they'd be in the Ring of Honor already. I don't get caught up in all that. I don't even know who's in the Jet Ring of Honor. Like, if you said a name Ring of Honor, I mean, yay or nay. But if you would have said, hey, these four names, do you think that they're in the Giants Ring of Honor already? I would have probably said yes, because they would have seemed deserving. Not, you know, it's not retiring their numbers. It's just putting them in the Ring of Honor as a very, very good Giant. And I think each and every one of those guys were. So congratulations to them. They do it, of course, the rivalry game against the Dallas Cowboys on that Monday night. So uh, we'll have plenty of time, of course, to get into that here. See, the Giants are doing it all in one game. Jets are doing three Ring of Honors this year. Remember, Revis, Mangold, and DeBrickashaw, they're going in on three separate dates, which is smart. You know, kind of reward the fans. Give them a little bit of a, little bit of a, um, a treat. If you have season tickets and you go to all those games, one game for one legend, another game for another and another game, so on and so on there. So it's going to be a fun uh, football season to honor a little bit of the past. But, you know, we're kind of tired of honoring the past, don't you think? Whether you're a Giant fan or a Jet fan. How about start honoring the present? That's what it all should be about right now. 800-919-3776. That is the telephone number. We come back. Speaking about legends, speaking of the past, a former New York Jet could be one step closer to immortality. And we'll find out about that tomorrow. I'll tell you what we're talking about. It's Grasso with you till the top. Then it's Larry Hardesty right here on 9870 ESPN. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. I'm a big boy. I can accept the blame. You know, I, I, I can admit when I'm wrong. I can, I, I can admit when I failed, when I've, you know, erred, whatever you want to say. You want to play Connect the Dots? We started this show, we launched this show yesterday, last night, right? This is night two, show two of the Dan Grosser show. 
Both nights since this show was launched, New York baseball's been in the toilet. So why do I feel like I'm going to have to go to bed tonight? And when the head hits the pillow, I'm going to have this guilty conscience as if it's my fault. It's our fault with this show that New York baseball now doesn't know which end is up. The Mets are dropping like flies. The Yankees can't get a hit to save their lives. Is it all my fault? Is it the fact that, you know, the show is the big curse of New York baseball now? And that both teams look borderline pathetic over the last couple of nights? I can already tell you this. When we show up tomorrow for our Wednesday extravaganza, you know what the big theme is going to be. I can promise you what the big theme is going to be. It's called, at least for the Mets, Max Scherzer. Buddy, 43 million bucks. You got to do it again. He did it in that ballpark on July 11th. In the opener of the series they played there last month, beat the Atlanta Braves. He's going to have to do it again tomorrow. Stop this slide that this team is on. And if you're the Yankees, hey, something, anything. If it's got to be Estevan Florial, fine. Anybody, just do something. And the Yankees are down to their final three outs tonight with only one measly run across the plate, and it's by an error. Where did we go wrong? What has happened? Like I said, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. Anyway, hopefully good news tomorrow for one Joe Klecko because Joe Klecko, for some reason, and I mean, look, there's theories. He's been overlooked as far as induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame has gone for many, 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 many years. Today was the day that the, I don't know what they're called, the Senior Committee, the Veterans Committee, one or the other, it's some committee. They had their virtual kind of Zoom meeting where they debated 12 senior candidates for induction into the Hall of Fame. Now, this year, because they alternate it, this year they chose three out of the 12. And those three, whoever they may be, are going to get filtered along to the modern-day committee that convene in and around the time of the Super Bowl, and they always make that announcement like the night before the Super Bowl next year as to what the class of 2023 is going to be. But it's almost kind of like a formality that if you are one of the three senior nominees, the modern era committee puts you through. So Klecko is like this close. You know what I'm saying? And they can right a wrong by finally giving him his just due. I mean, Klecko's a guy that, you know, whether you like it or not, Klecko is a guy that I think... Obviously, injuries curtailed some of his production in his career. You know, the guy battled so much adversity on the field and cut short a lot of seasons during his prime years. And he missed a lot of good football that he had out there. Secondly, you talk about a guy who, unfortunately, you know, played on a lot of teams with the Jets that weren't necessarily juggernauts and weren't necessarily winners. But the guy made the Pro Bowl three different positions, Defensive end, nose tackle, defensive tackle. And this was back when the Pro Bowl actually meant something. Like, guys wanted to go to the Pro Bowl. They tried hard, you know, to be in the Pro Bowl. They actually, you know, got a little nice bonus in their contracts when they weren't making $40 million a year. 
all pro teams, Pro Bowl teams, you name it. And you talk about his, you talk to his contemporaries. You talk to the offensive linemen that are in the Hall of Fame. You know, Anthony Munoz, who's as good a tackle as we've seen in the history of pro football. Remember the Cincinnati Bengals said the strongest guy he ever played against was Joe Klecko. John Hanna, Hall of Fame guard in the New England Patriots before Tom Brady was ever a thing. You know, once upon a time in the 70s and the 80s, out of Alabama. John Hanna said one of the toughest guys he ever had to go up against was Joe Klecko in the AFC East each and every single year. If those guys have your back, if those guys vouch for you, those are the ones that actually go have to go out there and lay it on the line and, and, and play against you and to beat you one-on-one. Their word should count for something. So hopefully, hopefully, I think the, uh, it's tomorrow afternoon at some point. They're going to unveil who the three names are. Hopefully he's one of the three names, and um, that'll be great. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing him at some point at one of the games this year out at MetLife Stadium for our pregame show. We always love having him on. We didn't get a chance to see him last year because, uh, you know, he was taking care of some stuff and battling through some things, getting repaired, and uh, I hear that he's doing a lot better. So looking forward to seeing Joe, and hopefully the committee there does right by him and uh, gives him the old thumbs up to hopefully get one step closer to Canton, Ohio, and immortality and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Real quick, Mets trailing the Braves 5-0 in the eighth. Yankees trailing the Rays 3-1 in the bottom of the ninth out there at the stadium. Just disgusting what has happened to New York baseball here over the last couple of days. We'll try to change it. You know, we'll do our part. We'll do what we can, but it hasn't been working the last couple of nights, that's for sure. This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs>